Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with David McRaney talking about his new book, How Minds Change. He has been studying for years the science of how people change their minds, uh, why we get locked into certain viewpoints, how we argue with other people, and what it is that can ultimately turn the tide. He has studied all kinds of different researchers working in various different subjects who have mastered the art of changing other people's minds in the course of a single conversation. And of course, this is something that parents of teenagers deal with a lot. We disagree with our teenagers about things. We have really strong views in one direction and they seem to have really strong views in completely the other direction. Sometimes it feels like we're at a complete impasse. They're just not getting it. And they feel the same way about us. That We're just so out of touch and we can't see it from their perspective. When we encounter these kind of issues with teenagers, what do we do? How can we have a conversation that, that's productive where we come closer together, where we're able to get through to the teenager and really get them to consider the issue in a different way and maybe even change their mind? That's the topic of today's show. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Really, really excited to speak with you about how minds change. So talk to me a little about where this came from. I mean, this is not something that you just decided you were interested in yesterday. You've been fascinated by the topic of how minds change for quite some time now. Yeah. Where did that interest come from? Well, I think it, it came from like, I've had this, my own podcast for a long time, and I've written a couple of books about this domain, but always from the perspective of motivated reasoning. Like I've always been fascinated with how people can come up with rationalizations and justifications for whatever they already think, feel, and believe. And if they're tasked with uh, changing their minds in some way, there's always a way out of it by more rationalizations and justifications. But I got to a point where people were asking me, like I was doing lectures and stuff, and people would ask me about the conspiratorial beliefs of their family members or something that had gotten into their politics in some way. And they were like, how do, how do I change their mind about that? And I was giving this advice that I now consider terrible. terrible which was, uh, I was like, well, you can't. They're motivated reasoners. I can, I can describe it for you, but I can't prescribe anything for you. And I just, just I, I got exhausted with that. I, I didn't like the way it felt. But at some point, it felt like I was locking my keys in my car. And at the same time, when this was starting to form as an idea, the attitudes, norms, and then eventually the laws concerning same-sex marriage in the United States changed very rapidly. And so it wasn't quite overnight. It took a while. But it, the main part of the change did take place over about a decade. And then the majority opinion flipped in just a couple of years from... 60 something plus percent of people being against it against same-sex marriage to 60 plus percent of people yeah. being for it that all happened over the course of about that main flip took place over the course of about three years and i just had this strange thought experiment of like 
I was involved in so many arguments like everyone else every day with people on wedge issues. And I thought, what if you took all the people who are now in favor of this, put them in a time machine, sent them back 10 years and had them meet themselves? <laughs> yeah. Would they argue with themselves? Because they would see things differently. And something happened between those two places. And I was like, what was it that happened in their brains? Like, what is it that happens in a human brain when we change get our minds? An argument. I thought if I could understand that, then maybe there could be an answer to this other question. And that's how this whole thing got started. I think that it's so fascinating uh, to think about how we get so entrenched in our ways of thinking about things. And I think that this shows up so much in families. You know, and you talked at one point about conspiracy theory. Yeah, my dad has continuously fallen into a couple of different conspiracy theories. He's always been, I grew up with a Vietnam vet father who does not trust the government. And sometimes he's quite reasonable and sometimes he's a little over the line in that prepper world of, uh, of uh, what are they up to. And as a science journalist who's oftentimes spending time with people who are very cutting edge of this kind of thing. I um every once in a while there'd be a disagreement. And I was shocked at how quickly we'd move into anger and how quickly we move into I don't maybe we shouldn't have this conversation. And yeah. my good friend Misha Globeman, who is a negotiation and conflict resolution expert, like he actually facilitates real like Jean-Luc Picard kind of uh diplomacy type things, you know. I told him I was like, I don't know what to do here. And he told me the that old parable about the orange, which is uh you know, there are these two two girls, they they want it. There's one orange and the two girls want it. It's like either I get it or you get it. And then like the father asks, why do you want the orange? And one girl says, I want to make orange juice. And the other girl says, I want to make a cake and I need the zest. zest. So it turns out they both can have the orange <laughs> if they would just reveal why they wanted the orange, right? And he said mm -hmm. that's a framing for a lot of our discussions in, in, or in this win-lose frame, this debate frame. Let's get behind a lectern and, and speak our, our, our ideas in front of an audience and see who wins frame and who loses frame. And he said, so the, the first thing you can do is ask yourself, why? Why do you want to change their mind? And you might discover that what you want and what he wants are the same, or you might have the same values, or you might consider the same problems, problems. And But more than that, you'll also discover why you care so much about this. And maybe your intentions to change their mind are, are something they need to hear. And I did that. I was like, well, why do I, okay, why do I want to change your mind? As well, because I, you believe things I don't believe. Why do I care about that? Because uh, I, I'm worried about this, this, and this. And you keep asking why till you get down to something going on between like, you know, dopamine and acetylcholine or something. But hopefully right. before you get there, you get to what I got to, which was, I love you. And I worried that there are people who are manipulating you is what it comes down to. I don't want you to trust those people. And when I shared that, when I said, you know, we see this differently, but the truth matter is that I love you very much. And I just worry that you're being misled and I don't want you to be misled. Then we just had a different discussion altogether. We went from being facing off to being shoulder to shoulder. We were both like, well, how would you determine somebody is trustworthy on the internet? And that was a completely different discussion that I didn't show up to have, but it turns out that was the better discussion to have. And that is what moved him more than anything else I had planned because it avoided something that I now understand in psychology is called reactance. And that's just this feeling that the other person wants you to do something. And that want could be anything. I mean, they could want you to pick up a pencil. They could want you to, to take out the garbage. They could, Or they could want you to change how you see the world. 
And it really doesn't matter what they want. It's that, it's that they want something and they're asking you to do it on their demand. And and some people, you can imagine with my father being this anti-establishment Vietnam vet kind of person, that reacts very poorly to feeling like somebody's trying to do something like that. His, his feels like his his agency, his freedoms being taken away in some way. So that was a clever way to avoid that reactive frame. And that's something I advocate for throughout the book is, is a, in the very beginning, you've got to get out of that frame or, or else you just won't even be able to have the conversation that you want to have. Yeah. And it's kind of, this changes the whole context of the conversation, obviously starting from a place of, Hey, I care about you and disclosing. I just love that idea of disclosing why you're trying to change the person's mind. And it's like, you have to get clear on that and honest with yourself about that first, which is all helpful. You use this phrase throughout the book that I like, which is that you can't just copy paste your own reasoning, your own thought process into someone else's head and expect them to follow it and accept it as their own. You have to talk about their thought process and how they develop these beliefs and why they believe this and where that came from. And that's how you can start to open them up. And I just think, yeah, starting a conversation off on the right foot is like so important to just like to set the tone that, yeah. you know, this isn't going to be uh, me trying to take my way of thinking about it and my perspective and just like force feed it into you. But this is like a conversation where I, I really just care about you. And I, I want to just talk about this and, and hear your perspective. Yeah. It is, and it's so easy to miss out or to even to, or to ignore that you had a reasoning process. That's how you arrived at your conclusion. Arrival yeah. suggests a journey. Arrival suggests there's been a process. And a conclusion is, suggests it has concluded. So like these beliefs and attitudes and values that we hold, when we come in contact with somebody else who has different ones, like it feels like we should just be able to do battle, take the facts, put them out into a little arena and have them fight the other person's facts and yeah. let the best facts win, right? Yeah, because it's um, obvious because they're they're wrong. Yeah, they're, it just seems so clear yeah. that that's that's a yeah. if like the facts are on my side or or I have the moral high ground or whatever it is you feel, but you got there somehow. Like there's a reasoning process, and reasoning in psychology means coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe for justifications and rationalizations and explanations that you would also in addition to that reasons in the sense that they could, would be reasonable, plausible to other people who share your values who are in your yeah. in-group and so on. And so they seem very natural to us. They seem like anybody who saw the facts would would think the things that I think. The other person has had different experiences. They may have somewhat different values. Than you. They may ha have just seen a, a propensity of evidence that uh, that you haven't, but also had they haven't seen the evidence you have and so on. There's all sorts of things that lead up to them having the position they have. And you can't expect them, you can hand the evidence to them and say, this should just change your mind. Like I'm going to send them this link or this YouTube video and they're going to be like, this is going to change your mind. All they have to do is watch this one thing. But they're going to interpret it using the same process they've used to cherry pick the evidence they already are using yeah. to back up their position. So right. just like, and if you, they did the same thing to you, I mean, they send you a YouTube video, you're going to go like, well, I can understand why this doesn't feel right at first because it seems to suggest you're saying that there's a middle ground between the two places or that, that there, especially there are some issues where like, it feels like I totally do not agree with their position and I do not wish to entertain it. Like I understand that there's a hesitation there, but I'm not suggesting you ever give up your position in that way or, or not feel as strongly as you feel about it. It's just important that if you hope to have that person see things more like you see it or entertain the way you see things or respect your opinion or move in any which way, 
Yeah. You can't engage them in a certain way because it's going to give you the opposite of what you're trying to get out of there. What you have to do is instead open up space to give the other person a chance to introspect. And then if there are counter arguments that they haven't considered, they have to write those counter arguments on their own. It has to be on their side. They have to produce them. Yeah. You can't take your counter arguments, which may be the exact thing they're going to think on their own, and then totally. hand it over to them because they're going to spit it right out of them. No thanks. But if they create that counter argument through the conversation space, then they'll own it and it'll have weight and balance out whatever arguments they currently hold. And that's what, that's sort of how all of this works. Every technique that I talk about does that in some way or form. It's interesting seeing the parallels between all these different approaches that you um, discovered from different people in different parts of the world, like kind of arriving at really remarkably similar frameworks for how to change people's minds. Um, and and th there are so many really cool parallels. One phenomenon that I found interesting is this idea called belief change blindness, oh, yeah. um, which is, yeah. And, and you saw this firsthand when you followed some, some canvassers around uh, Los Angeles who were kind of trying to change people's minds about political issues. And that a lot of times people that had this conversation with the canvassers, they didn't even really realize that their mind had been changed by the end of the conversation. Um, they kind of still felt like they were feeling yeah. the same way and didn't realize that they had actually kind of completely flip-flopped in their um, beliefs. Yeah, that blew my mind. One of the things that was most surprising that I'd never expected to find was all these different persuasion techniques that I talked about in the book. They Most of them had never met each other, had never looked at any of the science that that sort of the literature that would explain what they do. Uh, right. And they all independently came up with the same basic structure and it all works using the, the things that work in it are the same that work in all of them. And I talk in the book, I say, it's like, if you were going to try to build the first airplane, no matter where you did that on earth, it would end up looking like the same airplane pretty much. Right. Physics is physics wherever we are. Totally. Uh, brains also, thanks to a bunch of stuff in evolution and a bunch of stuff, just how brains operate. Things that work when it comes to persuasion work in all brains uh, and in the same manner. But the belief change blindness, yeah, you know, you're the first person to ask me about that, which I think is really cool. The, um, the, it was something that I could not get over. I, when I spent time with the leadership lab in Los Angeles at the LGBT Center of Los Angeles, because they developed something called deep canvassing, uh, they go door to door, knock on people's doors, and they have a very specific method about how they can uh, get people to adjust their attitudes on wedge issues related uh, at the time they developed it for lgbtq rights but now for just about any wedge issue there's this incredible like library of all the conversations they've recorded which at this point is more than seventeen thousand on video and they uh i just kept watching these i've spent time in, in their archives and just watch 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 and so often you could take that thing that i was talking about by going back in time you could go take the beginning of the conversation a person says they feel one way at the end of the conversation, they say they feel another, and you can back and forth see the difference. You can almost you can watch it slowly change, but from their subjective experience, after they see things differently, they often get kind of upset that you if you bring up that they had a different number or different uh, they had a different like they said something differently in the beginning. They're saying now like they would get like kind of weird about it because there's like to them it felt like yeah this is just how you would think about it. this is just the natural conclusion you'd have and they had and there's actual yeah. literature for this called the belief change blindness and there's lots of studies where they've 
they track people over time who have changed their minds about certain things, whether it's a, a fact, like a belief or an attitude. When you ask them about their previously held beliefs, they really don't recall or they don't feel very strongly that they ever felt differently about the issue. They, um, it's, it's, it's related to something called consistency bias. So we, we tend to be very biased in the direction of assuming that we have always thought, felt, and believed what we think, feel, and believe today. There's something else that I took out of the book that was I love so much called the uh, end of history illusion, which is the same. Oh, yes. Where they have people who change very dramatically on things and they, uh, but once they have changed, they say, and this is how I feel about this forever. So we're both kind of blind in both retrospection and prospection, like we're creatures of the present in a lot of areas, unless you've been a YouTuber for a long time, you can look back and cringe at yourself. You typically, uh, there are a lot of places you feel like, oh, I've just always been that way. But even that, you talked about a study in the book, uh, I think related to the Challenger film explosion, where they had people like write thoughts about it and stuff like that. And then they followed up with them a couple years later. And it was like only 10% of people had <laughs> got all of the things right, um, had still remembered correctly what all of the things were. But then when they went back and showed them their previous journal entry from two years ago, people would say things like, well, that is my handwriting, but but no, 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 that's no, no, it's you're tricking me. They thought that was the tr- that was the trick <laughs> in the experiment. It was that they right. had taken their handwriting and replicated a an opinion that they that they they don't currently hold. And they were like, You I didn't yeah. do that. I didn't there's no way I that I wrote that. And uh yeah, it's it's important to feel consistent and we we have a, a bias toward it. Oftentimes in the history of a nation, when attitudes change very quickly. People will often say, of course, this is how I feel about this. Why would you feel differently? But that person who's saying that did feel differently at some point. And it's odd that you would, you can resist for years and years and years. And then at the point, after you change your mind, you'll take on a frame of, well, it's obvious anybody who saw this would feel, it, would feel this way, the way I feel about it now. Right. And it can seem absolutely unconscionable that one that they that a person could feel differently even though they used to to feel differently which is something that you should think about i think whenever you consider great either changes in individuals or changes in nations that people may argue vehemently about something but when they do change their mind it it will almost evaporate to, for them the the con, the whole issue will seem like why would anyone argue about it which is one of the questions that i had going in was like how could how could brains work that way but there seems to be a lot of evidence behind why why brains do actually work that way just really makes me think about parent-teen relationships and how so much as a parent it's so hard to just even think that your teenager could be thinking this is a good idea or <laughs> not, not getting it or not seeing it and we forget that how we thought in the same way when we were teenagers or that hey it's been so long since we were actually in that headspace that mm-hmm. it's hard for us to even admit to ourselves or, or remember how it was when we felt that same way and or, or would have you know responded similarly in a situation like this and so I think a lot of like learning more about this research and just understanding that about ourselves can help us have more empathy and like mm-hmm. be able to just put ourselves in that space a little bit more and uh, I think that's really cool yeah I, I talk about that a lot cognitive empathy is what I like to call it where there's a good chance for to express it in this very particular framing you're giving me here like like over the line of you not being a teenager anymore you can yeah. get in that space of like, of course, this is how you should think about things. How could anybody see them any other way? And I've always felt this way. Uh, yeah. And if, you, if you're if you doling advice out to your teenager from that frame, they're going to see right through that. If they don't see through it, they're going to 
react poorly to it because you are doing that thing you're saying. Let me copy and paste this in your brain as if I was never in this place you were before, as if I could never conceive of, of having behaved in the way you're behaving or thinking what you're thinking or feeling or believing. When you yeah. most likely, if not that, you were way Or this time machine idea that if you put your current <laughs> self now in the same room with your teenage self, you'd probably be, you'd be having the same argument <laughs> because, <laughs> That's um, right. because we change. That's right. Something in your book is this idea of disambiguation. Oh, and, um, yeah, it's at the core of kind of a lot of what we've been talking about. And you talk about that whole dress meme mm -hmm. that was that was like super viral a few years back where people were saying, no, the dress is black. No, the dress is white. And mm -hmm. everyone's looking at the same picture and they're, they're seeing the dress differently. And, and then, you know, of course, the question is, well, how, how is it even possible that we could look at this, the exact same picture and someone could see it as black and someone else could see it as white? And I really, <laughs> this whole section of your book has really got me thinking but I guess it comes down to this idea of disambiguation. Disambiguation is what it sounds like. It's taking something that's ambiguous and making it not so ambiguous. And this usually yeah. happens when there's new information that's, that generates some sort of uncertainty. But what I like to point out in the book is that in the moments in which we take something ambiguous and make it less so, the fact that it was ever ambiguous usually doesn't register. Mm. And that's hard to believe. Just to take the, the dress as an example. The picture that went around the internet in 2015, when some people look at it, it's black and blue. And some people look at it, it's, it's white and gold. And however you see it, that's just the way you see it. But the truth of the matter is, it could be interpreted in either way. And the fact that you are interpreting it doesn't seem to be something that you're aware of. The fact that it was ever ambiguous and you needed to make it less so, not something you're aware of. You only get the result of all that process. You never, you don't actually get to witness it take place inside your mind. And the short answer as to why that happens is the more exposure a person has had to sunlight over the course of their lives, the more they've seen things overexposed in sunlight. And the more you've seen things uh, indoors, incandescent light, the more you have seen things overexposed in incandescent light. And just the variations of life experience can lead a person to these two different assumptions when it comes to overexposure. And that's an image that's overexposed right on the edge where it could be seen as being overexposed in sunlight or overexposed in incandescent light. Sunlight mm -hmm. is mostly in the blue spectrum and incandescent light is mostly in the yellow spectrum. So the brain will try to subtract the overexposure to help you see it the way it should be seen. Yeah, uh, yeah, what, what color is it really? Right. And so... Some people subtract blue, some people subtract yellow, and the result is either black and blue, white and gold. The thing is, you don't know you're doing that. And uh, and it can feel that, I remember the arguments that took place online at that time, was like, the, the people who see this differently than me are bonkers. And and then you might actually, you got, I remember seeing like local news reports where they argued at the end, they're like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? It's white and gold. Like, it, it was unfathomable that you could see it differently, right? And the researchers at NYU that I spent time with to help me understand this, they developed this model uh, they said this helps understand disagreement itself. They called it surf pad. And in the presence of moments of substantial uncertainty, in the presence of ramified or forked prior assumptions, it will always lead to disagreement. So ramified means branching. But the point of that is the prior assumptions part is everything that's happened to you over the course of your lifetime that leads you to have a certain kind of model that disambiguates in a certain way. There are yeah. moments in life that are ambiguous. And that means in those moments, in we fact, cleanly, most, 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 <laughs> and in those moments, people will 
disagree with one another about how to disambiguate it. And, uh, but it won't feel that way. And it can often lead people to feeling like, like, this is the only way to see this. You know, Pascal Wallace, who did the research and all this, he said, you know, it's not completely unbelievable to think that a political groups could form around one way of seeing the dress and another. Yeah, um, right. Because I mean, all that ha- all that take would have to happen is like-minded people spend a lot of time with each other online. They're, they they meet each other through the dress somehow, and then, then they somehow they end up uh, black and bluers and yellow and golders. And then all that has to happen is that some subset of that community has very particular anxieties uh, and fears, maybe prejudices about mm-hmm. the world, and they group up. And then now you have a pretty tight cluster of people, and then those people can form a larger and larger group until they have clout that could be expressed politically. So it's not unfathomable. He wanted to to demonstrate that SurfPad is something that we should be aware of whenever we disagree with other people. They may have no options in that regard. They just simply are experiencing the world as they experience it, and they're not aware that they're doing any sort of disambiguating. And so that's not to forgive anyone for having a heinous viewpoint or doing something that's harmful in this world or wishing harm upon you, perhaps even. But it does give you an uh, opportunity to understand, Okay, if I wanted to affect change in this regard, this is something I have to take into account. And it's just such a perfect metaphor, I think, especially because the difference between outdoor lighting and indoor lighting. And so people who really spend spent a lot of time outdoors and have that experience will tend to disambiguate the image in one way as people who have spent more time indoors or work indoors for you know long periods of time will tend to see it another way and their brain disambiguates it another way and you write that people with broadly similar experiences and motivations tend to disambiguate in broadly similar ways that's so true and we get in these groups of people that are like us, or, you know, parents, you're talking to your spouse and you're talking to your friends who are also parents. My kid just, just doesn't get it. You know? <laughs> They're all going to be with you because they've got really similar views to you. But, you know, your teenager is maybe having similar conversations with their friend. Like, can you believe my parent just so out of touch, not understanding this because they're disambiguating the issue in a, a completely another way based on their yeah. own experiences. And I've got a, I've got a good example of this. Similar. Putting a period at the end of your sentence in a text message. If you are at a certain age range, that comes across as being aggressive. It comes across as you're trying to to either some sort of tone, right? And yeah. at, over a certain age, it's like I just put periods at the end of my sentences because it's proper English. But uh, and it makes no sense why a person could see it any differently than you see it. It makes the other person seem so silly. But the reason for that is if you grew up in a world of text messaging and, and you grew up in a world of messaging at all, there's no need to put a period at the end of your sentences because <laughs> the text message ends the statement. The you statement click has, send. <laughs> it's it's the gone. The, message. The, the purpose right. of a sentence is inside a page of text to say this this particular statement I've made is over and now I'm starting another one. Like it ends the sentence and starts another. So it had yeah. a purpose. That you don't have to have it in that world. So in that world, it frees up the the period to serve a new purpose, which is okay. If I'm adding a period to something that already has concluded, then I'm trying to say it with strength. This one of those things where, like, uh, if you refuse to to communicate in that way with someone who sees it differently than you, you are also kind of refusing to understand why they would see things that way, and you're rejecting their entire like you're rejecting the fact that they can't help but see it that way. And that's not going to be useful for any kind of conversation. 
Hey, we're here today with David McRaney talking about how minds change. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Most parents know, have felt this, that there's a certain age, you start feeling your influence start to slip in some way. And, and that the influence of these peers, like, why do you care so much what these people think about you? Because we're social primates. That's the thing we care about more than anything. And you probably have similar feelings, but just not about the, the people you're hanging out with and, and uh, playing Minecraft or, or uh, you know, listen, watching TikTok or making TikToks. But like, you have people like that in your world. You have people like that all throughout your world. And given an option to choose between losing your, your complete reputation, your status among them uh, versus, you know, just going ahead and staying wrong about something or, or choosing to going somewhere you didn't ever want to go, like going on a vacation you didn't want to go to or going at the minimum, just going to a restaurant you hate. Like we do that stuff all the time. And totally. this, the world of a teenager is smaller than ours. It's so, socially, their circles are tight and limited and their right. ability to, to move around the world is not as great. So that means that social influence is even more influential in that space. They might not have the opportunity to be in many other groups, but they do have a chance to introspect and discover where, what are my core values and are these core yeah. values being expressed among the people that I'm spending my most time with. That is something that you can do. And is this thing that I'm about to do, not do, believe, not believe, feel, not feel? Is this something that is close to my core values or is it kind of far away from it? And if it's far away from it, what's influencing me to get so far away? That's something you can really put to someone and you can do it by just compassionately, non-judgmentally asking the kind of questions that will lead a person to their own answers to those questions. You're really communicating somehow that you're not out to shame them. What you're saying is not an attempt to get them ostracized among their most trusted peers. Even if you do feel personally that they should be ashamed, you do feel personally that you hope they do leave that group. But if you, com- right. if you communicate that up front, then they're just not going to continue the conversation with you. And if that's important to you, then you need to try to build the rapport that allows you to have the conversation. I totally understand. There are some situations where it's like, fine then, but like, if this is something you want to engage with, this is what you have to do. And then the next part is ask the person if the issue is a fact-based issue, ask them how certain they are, like on a scale from zero to 10. If it's an attitude-based issue, ask them what their attitude is. Like, and try to give them an anchor. Like 10 is, I believe this, and zero is, I believe this. Belief probably is a bad word. 10 is, I feel this strongly, and zero is so strongly, suggesting that if I were a 10, this would be true. If zero, this would be true. Once you get that out there, then you ask, why does that number feel right to you? If they say they're a seven, you know, say, why a seven? That leaves the framing of debate, that leaves the win-lose scenario, that puts a person in a metacognitive, introspective state of, why do I feel that way? And oftentimes, people have never done that. You could even go further and say, why not a six? Why not a five? Or say, why not a nine? Why not a 10? And ask them to start producing counter-arguments that they've never considered before. But you're not taking your counter-arguments out of your head and putting them into their head. They're building them on their own. They're their counter-arguments. And when we do that, we're more likely to, to listen to those things, keep those things, add them to our collection of ideas, and they start having weight. They can counterbalance whatever we already had in there. And that leads to change. So the steps go further than that. But I think it's those first two, they're there in every single one of these persuasion techniques. Those first two are always there. And then they get more particular depending on like what you're aiming for. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.